0: Please have a seat. And could you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, beginning a new series. Colossians chapter 1, which is on page 1183 of the Church Bibles. Page 1183 of the Church Bibles, and on the inside of this handout, which you received as you came in, There is an outline of where we're going, Uh, so those of you who want to take notes can do that. Those of you who want to know how much time we have left can try and guess from that. What kind of church glorifies God? What are the characteristics of a community that rightly leads to his praise? And how can we as individuals, and we as a congregation, be people like that? What are the processes we need to go through? What are the critical pathways we need to take? How can we be the kind of people that God wants us to be? We see some of the answers to those questions in our passage today from the book of Colossians. Colossians was a letter written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to Christians in a place called Colossae. There were a people for whom Paul could genuinely thank God. So they were a perfect church. They were threatened by false teaching as we shall see in weeks to come, and they were in danger. And yet they were a church in which God was at work. And we're going to unpack some of that work uh, as we look at this passage this morning. Before we do that, let's think about some of the background of the letter. A colossi was a town in Asia Minor. If you've got good eyesight, you might just be able to see that. Um, part of what we would now call Turkey. At one stage, it had been a big town, with a thriving wool industry, of all things. Uh, But by the time Paul wrote this letter, it was in decline. It was just a small town. Much less important than Laodicea and Hierapolis, which were about 16 to 20 kilometers away, in the same valley called the Lycus Valley. Now, Paul had never been to Colossae. But he had spent two years in Ephesus, which is about 200 kilometers away. On the map, if you can, might be able to see it, on the, on the left-hand side. If you can't, don't worry. He was in Ephesus. And every day he had preached and argued and reasoned in a prominent hall there. And that was so effective that the gospel went out from that place to the whole area. All the residents of Asia, Luke says in Acts 19, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And that included the three towns of the Lycus Valley. Colossi, and if you flick across to chapter 4, verse 13, Laodicea and Hierapolis. One of the missionaries who took the Gospel out from Ephesus was this guy called Epaphras. Now, so we're going to learn a little bit about Epaphras from chapter 1 and also in the end of chapter 4, so we're just going to flick between chapter 1 and chapter 4 for the next couple of minutes. All right. In chapter 1, verse 7, The Colossians heard from Epaphras, who is described by Paul as, verse 7, our beloved fellow-servant. The phrase is fellow-slave, someone who who gave up his rights in order to serve Jesus. And he's referred to in the second half of verse 7 as a, a faithful minister or servant of Christ on your behalf. That is, he served Christ and he served it for the sake of the Colossians, he did it for them. He served Christ faithfully and brought the gospel to them so they could be saved. He worked for their good. Now, if you flick to chapter 4 verse 12, you'll see that Epaphras was actually one of them. He was a Colossian. That explains part of why he was he'd served them so well. But he didn't just have a heart for his own hometown from 4.13. We see that he had close connections with the churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis as well, and chances are he formed all three. All right, so here what we have is this what we have is this. Paul has been reasoning and arguing and teaching in the hall, in Ephesus. One of the men who was converted in Ephesus is a Paphros, comes from Colossae, and he takes the gospel back to Colossae, plants a church there, and he also goes to the two neighboring towns and does the same thing. Huh? Pretty great Chaffee, isn't he? But when Paul wrote this letter, Epaphras was not in Colossae. He had left Colossae to take news of them to Paul. And so in verse 8 of chapter 1, we see that uh, he, he, Paul tells the Colossians that Epaphras has made known to us, it's Paul and Timothy, your love in the Spirit. He's told them, he's gone back and said, look, the Spirit is producing the fruit of love in this church. And that is great news indeed, a source of thanksgiving and a stimulus, as we will see next week, and as we look at verses nine to fourteen, a stimulus to prayer. However, Epaphras does not go back with this letter to Colossi. In chapter four, verse seven, we see someone else does. His name is Tychicus, and instead, he sends Epaphras sends them greetings in verse twelve. Why doesn't Epaphras go back? He's got a heart for the work there. Well, the best explanation starts with the theory that the letter to Philemon was sent to Colossi at the same time as this letter. It's a reasonable theory, because in chapter 4 verse 9, Onesimus is being sent along with Tychicus, who carries the letter, and Onesimus was the one who carried the letter to Philemon. So if this theory is correct, then we can go to Philemon and find out something, and well, on the screen we'll see, in Philemon there is a message. Epaphras my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you. See, Epaphras is now in prison with Paul. We don't know how it happened. We know it did. And they're side by side. They were partners in preaching the gospel. And now they are partners in prison for the gospel. Friends, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And those who proclaim the Gospel must be willing to sacrifice as well. Paul and Epaphras both knew the great joy of planting new churches and seeing them grow. And they also knew the pain of being in chains for the Gospel. And friends, if we are to be Gospel people, if we are to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ for the sake of others, if we are to be fellow slaves of Christ, then we must remember that it will not always be rosy. The Gospel is not about us having a comfortable, stress-free life. There is great joy in serving the Lord Jesus. And there is also great cost. Back now, chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul opens the letter. And he does it in a normal way at the time by introducing himself as the author. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. The word apostle means sent one, someone who is especially chosen and sent by someone else. Right? So if you were the apostle of Kingston, then you'd be someone whom Kingston has sent and given, given his authority to, say, so, okay, you can sign for me. All right. He had the delegated authority. Right? Who was Paul an apostle of? Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. The risen Jesus had appeared to him. He had appointed him as the apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus had appointed 12 apostles to the Jews and one apostle to the Gentiles. And so like the 12 apostles, Paul was delegated with special authority by the Lord Jesus himself. He was one of Jesus' representatives in this world. And so he writes with the authority of the apostle. His authority that derives from Jesus himself. And so as we read this letter, we know that Jesus is standing behind it. He's not just writing in his own name, he's writing as an Apostle of Jesus Christ, on behalf of Jesus. And then he adds Timothy's name to it too. Timothy was Paul's protégé. He's a man he'd been discipling and training and working with for many years. And Paul includes him in this opening greeting, not as an Apostle, but as a brother. Now, the letter is really coming from Paul himself. He starts off talking about we, and then after a while he ends up talking about I. Right? We don't know why he includes Timothy here. Maybe because Timothy is taking dictation when he's speaking. Maybe, maybe he's including him as like part of the team that, you know that's sending it out. You know, sometimes when I send emails to family and friends, I send it from me and Judy, even though actually I'm the one who wrote it. Maybe it's a bit like that. But the recipients of the letter are described in verse 2. To the, saints and the faithful, uh, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God the Father. Now the word brothers there includes both males and females, not just writing to the men, it's writing to his siblings, right? brothers and sisters. They've never met, they, they may have never met before, but the Colossians are Paul's brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a great bond that the Gospel brings, isn't it? And the other thing they are, are they are saints. The word saints means holy ones. In the Old Testament times, there were things in the temple that were holy. But now Christ has fulfilled all that. He is the temple, the place we meet God. His sacrifice once and for all has made the, the temple redundant as a place of sacrifice. His spirit who dwells in us makes the temple redundant as a place where God's presence dwells. So there are no more holy things, but there are holy people. People who have been set apart, especially for God. And brothers and sisters, if we belong to Jesus, then that is us. If we are what verse 2 calls faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have faith in Christ, then we are also the saints. Everyone who has faith in the Lord Jesus is a a saint. So we are holy. We are set apart to belong especially to him. So, to God, we are the saints. To each other, we are brothers and sisters. And we need to act that way, don't we? If to God we are the saints, if we are holy, set apart for him, then we are to live as holy people. If you were an Israelite, you would not commit sin in the temple, would you? Well, they did, but that's, that's sacrilege. And if you are a Christian, you should not commit sin in your body. Because that is a temple. That is sacrilege. We are holy. We are saints. We are set apart from God. And our action is meant to reflect our status. It should be who we are in relation to God. And later on in the book of Colossians, we'll see this fleshed out in many practical instructions. And we should be who we are in relation to each other. If we are brothers and sisters in Christ, then we need to act to each other in a brotherly and sisterly way. That means loving each other, and forgiving each other, and being kind to each other, and overlooking each other's wrongs. And again, later on in the book of Colossians, we'll see various ways this means in practice. But there's another very significant thing in this introduction. Because the Holy Spirit, through Paul, describes the Colossians, Christians, in in two other ways. They are, in verse 2, in Christ, at Colossae. In Christ, at Colossae. Spiritually, they are in Christ. Physically, they are at Colossae. Being in Christ means they have been spiritually united with Christ. They belong to Christ. God considers them as being part of Christ. Christ is their head. They are in Him. What belongs to Christ belongs to them. The righteousness of Christ is considered theirs. Their sin had been considered as Christ's. And Christ paid for it when He died for them on the cross. And so they had all the blessings, all the privileges of Christ. They were in Christ. But physically, they were not in heaven. They, they were in Colossae. That dwindling little town in the Lycus Valley. With all their struggles and all their difficulties. They belonged in heaven. They belonged in Christ. But in the meantime, they lived in Colossae. And brothers and sisters, that is true of us as well. If we have faith in Christ, then we are His. We are in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in Him. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have adoption as God's children, His promised Holy Spirit, an inheritance that awaits us in heaven that will never spoil or fade. But at the same time, we live in KL. We face the temptations of KL. We face money temptations. We face sex and porn temptations, we face the temptations to treat other people in a way that isn't right, to gossip or slander, to use people to be unjust. We are in KL, we face the temptations of KL and not only that, we face the problems of KL, job problems, family problems, money problems relationship problems, all kinds of problems. Some of them are problems of our own making. Some of them are someone else's fault. Some of them are things that simply happen because we live in a fallen world. Some of the temptations we can run from and when we can, we must run. We can't run completely from all the KL temptations. We can't run from all our KL problems. can't run away from living in KL. We have a motivation to resist the KL temptations. We have a perspective with which to deal with the KL problems. Because we're not just in KL. More importantly, we are in Christ. And that is what we need to remember all the time. Because it's so easy to forget that, isn't it? It's so easy to remember that we're in KL, because you know, KL is all around us. But what we must keep on remembering, and what we must keep on reminding each other, is that we're not just in KL, we are in Christ. Being in KL will pass away. Being in Christ will be forever. How did the Colossians come to be in Christ? How did they come to have the blessing of salvation in him? Well, we can work this out from Paul's thanksgiving in verses 3 to 8. Paul thanks God for them in verse 3. He says, we always thank God when we pray for you. So ultimately God is to be praised for their status. But Paul knows that they are saved. He's aware of it. He, he, he realizes it because he has heard verse 4. Of their faith in Christ Jesus, or another way of translating is their faithfulness in Christ Jesus, or to Christ Jesus, and the love that they have for the saints. That is their evidence of being in Christ. And that is always the evidence of true conversion, faithfulness to Christ, and love for his people. And why do they have this faithfulness and love? What keeps them going in that? Verse five: because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Hope in the Bible. Oh, by the way, you can follow the you can follow the uh, what you can follow the uh, logic of his argument on the in the diagram on the screen. Can you click one more. I think I forgot, That's it. Okay. Hope in the Bible. Is not some vague kind of wishful thinking, all right? It's not like, you know, um, Kenji might hope that Manchester United wins the Premiership. Are you Man- who's a Manu fan here, Indran? Ah, oh, Indran and Enid and John. Okay, these people hope that Manchester United wins the Premiership. Okay, it is a vain hope, <laughs> a very unlikely thing indeed. Right? Now, hope in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is not that kind of hope. Right? It is, it is looking forward to something with confidence. It is about being certain of something that is to come, that is guaranteed to happen. Colossians, they were, they had hope. They were looking forward to the future, and it's the glorious future they would have with Christ when He is revealed. And that is what motivated them to faithfulness, to Christ now. In spite of whatever difficulties that that would come their way. That is what motivated them to love the saints now. Even if the saints could sometimes be difficult. Having that hope, hope that we sang about in one of our songs just now, having that hope leads to faithfulness and love because we're motivated by the end. And where did that hope come from? Well, the second half of verse 5. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So it is the gospel which gave them that hope. The, the gospel, or the message that was preached to them, was a gospel that was about the future. Had promises for the future. But it was about God's promises, about what would happen in the end. So the Gospel that Epaphras preached to them, told them, was, was about the hope that was kept in heaven for those who would trust in Jesus as their Saviour and their King. Now some preachers will rubbish this Gospel as pie in the sky when you die. We need to give promises to people now. So they have a Gospel of steak on the plate while you wait. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. Come to Jesus and you will certainly be healed. Come to Jesus and he will sort out your financial problems. Be healthy and wealthy and all will be well. Friends, that is not the gospel that Paul preached. That is not the gospel that Paphras preached. That is not the gospel that the Colossians believed. That is a false gospel. A gospel tailored to get in the numbers by telling people what they want to hear. it's not the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is about the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. And it was this Gospel that was bearing fruit and growing among the Colossians. Paul speaks to the Colossians in verse 6 about this Gospel. He says, it has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it does among you. The word growing there is actually in the passive in the Greek. God is the one who is causing it to grow. The gospel was being grown by God, it was spreading, and it was bearing fruit. See, you don't have to invent a false gospel to get results. The true gospel does grow and bear fruit. People were developing hope, which leads to faithfulness and love, and that is the fruit of the gospel. And that was happening all around the world. The word world there means the inhabited world, or the Roman Empire at the time. And in Colossians that was happening since, in the second half of the verse six, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So when the Colossians heard the gospel and they truly understood the grace of God, they began to grow. It began to grow and bear fruit among them. See, because truly understanding the gospel truly means understanding grace. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of grace. Grace means unmerited favor. It's about God being kind to us in a way that we don't deserve. It's not about us doing, doing, doing. It's about God giving. Because our sin, our rebellion against God is such that all we deserve from God is his judgment and his condemnation. We deserve his punishment. And yet instead, Jesus died for us. He took our sins on our behalf. Paid our debts on the cross by by taking our place. And he offers forgiveness and glory with him forever as a gift. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. That is grace. And when the Colossians truly understood God's grace, they began to truly understand how amazingly kind God was to them in Jesus Christ. When they heard, when they believed, when they understood grace, the gospel was being fruit among them. It comes from grace. But before they could understand the gospel, then first they had to learn it. And Paul says in verse seven, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant. See the gospel itself is a message. There's a body of teaching that needs to be learned. That's why we run courses like Christianity Explored. Or we train Christians to explain the Gospel to other people and get that body of teaching across. And things like Two Ways to Live. There are facts that we need to learn. Jesus is God's promised King. Jesus died for our sins in our place. Jesus rose from the dead as Lord of all. Jesus will come back to judge the world and save his people. There are facts that we need to learn. But just learning the facts is not enough. We need to understand God's grace in all its truth. See? Both those two things. Understanding God's grace in all its truth, that is the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Enabling us to receive that grace for ourselves. That's called conversion. It's more than learning the gospel facts, but it's not less. One is built on the other. It's not just having the facts, first you learn the facts, but then the Holy Spirit enables us to appropriate them, for our, appropriate them for ourselves. To know, to appreciate the grace that God has shown us in Jesus. And then remember what happens? The Gospel bears fruit and grows. Not just talking about individuals, in the whole community. The gospel grows and bears fruit in the church as people learn it and understand God's grace and its truth. And how does it happen? Because it tells us the hope that we have in heaven. It points us to the future. It gives us that hope and certainty in the midst of all the uncertainties of life. And knowing the future gives us meaning and purpose now. Knowing the future enables us to keep on pressing on faithfully now through all the hardships of this life. Knowing the future enables us to keep on loving even when people are difficult. And because of the future hope in verse 5, we are faithful to Jesus Christ and love the saints in verse 4. And that is something, verse 3, to thank God for. Because he's the one who is behind this gospel. And he's in control of the process every step of the way. So, friends, where are you up to in that process? Have you learned the Gospel? Do you know that, that body of truth? If not, then sign up for Christianity Explored course as soon as you can. All right? Put a blue card in, give us your name, give us your phone number and say, I want to do Christianity Explored. And we'll get in touch with you, get someone to do it with you. If you've learned the Gospel... Have you understood God's grace in all its truth? Do you realise for yourself that you are a great sinner and that Jesus is a great saviour? Are you relying on Jesus alone for your salvation? Are you thankful for what God has done for you in the past and God will do for you in the future that you cannot possibly earn, that you cannot deserve and you don't even try? If not, will you pray that God's Spirit will open your heart so that you realize the abundant grace God has given us in the Lord Jesus Christ? And have a heart and life that is shaped by grace. But if you have understood God's grace truly, then is the gospel growing and bearing fruit in your life? There's a growing and bearing fruit in in our congregation here. Friends, we need to keep setting our minds again on the hope that is set before us in heaven. Because sometimes it's easy, isn't it, to get so distracted by the things of this world. Sometimes we're having such a good time here that we don't appreciate what's in store for us there. And if that's us, then we need to ask God to renew our vision. We need to pray that God will enable us to keep our minds, our eyes on the on the goal ahead. And if God in His tender love deems that suffering in this life is what it will take to get our focus onto the next, then let's be prepared to receive it humbly. We need to have our vision sharpened on the hope of the future. And if our hearts are fixed on the hope of the future, that will lead us to faithfulness and love in the present. Will we be faithful to Jesus? Trust him to the very end? Keep following him no matter what he allows on our path because we know that in the end, he will more than make it up to us. Will we be faithful to Jesus? And will we love the saints? Will we keep on loving the saints even if they are less than saintly in their action toward us? Will we be gracious and kind to them in a way that they don't deserve because we know that God is kind to us and will be so overwhelmingly kind to us in the future in a way that we don't deserve? Will we love the saints? friends, the kind of community that we need is a community of faithfulness to Jesus Christ and love for his people. That is the kind of congregation that we must strive to become. I think we are something like that. I think we need to keep on working towards it as well. That's what we want to be. Individually and together. Because that is the kind of church that glorifies God. But you know, friends, that is not something we can legislate for. It's not something we can impose. It's not something we can even program. It's something that flows out of the Gospel of Jesus. Something that comes from the Spirit as he enables us to truly appreciate God's grace. Something that's motivated, motivated by the hope that is in store for us in heaven. And so when we see evidence of that, faith, and love, in our lives, in our church, or in the lives and churches of others, then the appropriate response is to thank God, like Paul did for the Colossians. Because it is his gospel, his grace, his Son, his Spirit, that makes a church like that. And in the end, it's all dependent on him. That's right.